to begin with uh, one of my favorite prayers and uh, written by St. Ignatius as part of the exercise, the Susipe. So we'll just begin with prayer and then we'll dive right in. Take, Lord, and receive all that we have and all that we possess. Give us only your love and your grace. That is enough for us. Give us your love and your grace. That is enough for us. What I'd like to do tonight and tomorrow is um, basically divide it up into three questions. And I'm grateful for being asked to think about seeing Christ in the face of the poor because though I live and work among the poor uh, every day, there's something about being asked to think systemically about it. Uh, and so I've broken it down into three questions. Uh, and the first is, who is poor? And then the next question is, what's the appropriate Christian attitude or disposition to the poor? And the third we'll take up tomorrow is, what's an authentically Christian response to the poor? So who is poor? What's the appropriate Christian attitude towards the poor? And what should we do with and for the poor? I have to be honest, uh, perfectly transparent, that you know when you're working downtown in, in central Phoenix and then you come out to uh, a suburban parish, um, uh, you know the material differences are, are significant. And um, the one thing I don't want to make you feel is guilty um, that uh, you have homes and families and stability in your life. Um, uh, that is not my intent at all. I have lived a very blessed life. I've come from a family, and I've never been homeless. And uh, you know, uh, priests, we never miss a meal, for God's sake. So um, that's not my goal, but, but I, it is in the back of my mind, right? Because uh, for people who have been blessed with material um, strength in our lives, sometimes just this whole issue makes us feel... Uh, guilty, and my hope is not to make you feel guilty, maybe a little uncomfortable, um, but uh, I think that's where we're called to be sometimes. They said Jesus came to uh, comfort the afflicted and to afflict the comforted, and so um, by no means, I don't know you well enough, uh, so I have no right to judge you, so if the things that I say feel judgmental, that's not how they're intended to be. So is that a fair ground rule? All right, great. Um, but as I said, I, I hope to push you a little bit. And as I've thought about our time together, uh, it would be uh, easy, relatively easy, for me to entertain you with a series of stories about the poor and the homeless that I've had the privilege of working with for the past 15 months. Um, uh, it would be somewhat easy to tell their stories and, and, and squeeze your heart and make you feel um, something, compassion for them. But usually when I preach, I'm usually aiming for people's neck, right? So the mid-distance between their head and their heart, right? So when I preach, I want to I do something to stimulate their mind, but I, I also want to try to do something to stir their heart a little bit. But as I think about our time together, I just have to admit that, I, that I'm not aiming for your hearts so much as I am your heads, right? Because the questions that we're asking, who is poor uh, and what are our attitudes towards the poor, uh, I'm really trying to engage the way that you think, right? Uh, and I presume this is a friendly audience. You wouldn't be here if you weren't thoughtful about the poor in our midst, right? So it'll be a little bit cerebral. Uh, it's not going to be St. Thomas Aquinas. It's not going to be deep theology, but um, I'm not going to go for the easy plages to squeeze your hearts because I think it's important that we think about these things. And I'll use a couple of videos. I'll use a couple of video clips tonight and a couple tomorrow, and I 
I pick for movies because in some ways they, they can be foils or they can be sort of commentaries on, on life in the world. And so we'll have, you know, even if you get tired of my voice, we'll have a couple of minutes of video relief for you. Um, and I will plan sort of a short intermission, not so you can go out, but so you can talk to each other for a couple of minutes between the first question, who is poor, and the second question is, what's, what's a Christian attitude towards the poor? So you're not going to be stuck here still for, for 90 minutes. So fair enough. So we'll break it up a little bit. So I know this isn't uh, normal for uh, a church setting uh, because we don't usually call on people in a Catholic setting to, to speak. But I did want to uh, just start off with uh, a really basic question, and it's not a trick question. Um, what would be some of the hallmarks? And I'm going to ask you, right? And if nobody puts up their hand, then I'll point to you, right? So, um, uh, but just, this is just to get us started. What are some hallmarks of what, uh, what the poor or what is a sign of poverty in somebody's life? So uh, some of them are, pr- I mean, they're all pretty obvious, but what are some of the hallmarks or signs of p- poverty uh, in a person or in a family's life? So anyone? Without a support system, very good, very good. Support system meaning it could be family, people, right? Right. Great. Right. So the analogy is that a child, research has shown that they need 16 support people to make them successful in school, right? So a support system. What would be some other hallmarks of poverty? Hunger. hunger, right? Just plain old physical hunger, right? Good. Sir? Financial yeah, financial instability and want. Uh, big, big thing. And, and it's, it's probably the thing that we focus on most frequently because it's tangible. You can, me- you can measure it. So definitely a, a common thing. But lack of basic necessity. So we talked about food. What would be an example of another basic necessity that you, you could think? Yeah, without shelter, right? Yeah, I, I, well, I know which is worse. The hot days of summer being outside or the cool days of winter, they're both difficult here, right? We go from one extreme to another uh, here. Sir? Lack of security and fear. Lack of security and fear, right? So fear can be generated from that lack of security, uh, or it can be just a, an existential or sort of constant or chronic angst. Yeah, sir. Unforeseen illness. Yeah, it's a it's a it's a great example. So I got a letter from somebody from Maricopa County. Uh, they had noticed through some of their data collection that the week after Thanksgiving that there was sort of an outbreak of dysentery in our neighborhood. And since we do part of the congregant feeding, they asked me, what do you know about it, right? And so um, uh, in the summer, uh, a case, a problem with your stomach or GI or diarrhea, for you and I, it's a, it's a trip to the drugstore, right? Uh, but it can be life-threatening for somebody who doesn't have access to healthcare or knowledge how to access it. Great, please. A lack of dignity and respect, yeah, yeah, yeah. Sometimes it's it's the external dignity and external respect, and sometimes they've lost it themselves. There's no self-dignity, and there's sort of an erosion of the self-respect. Conversation, Conversation. yeah, we're going to talk about that a little bit later. Somebody to talk to. Uh, we ran a forum a couple of weeks ago and uh, we sat down with a, a group of homeless men at home during our anniversary and we had this forum and I was sitting with a guy by the name of Dirk and Dirk is an American Indian, uh, big guy, uh, ponytail and you know one of the things he said is really hard, he said you know on the street they call me Big Chief, he said my name isn't Big Chief, right? my name's Dirk, I'd appreciate if somebody just called me by my name. Uh, just to be known, you know, let alone have a conversation. So you've done a really nice job um, because generally we think of poor and poverty as, as just an economic state, 
right? And it's certainly far more, as you guys have, have, have sort of indicated, it's far more than just the economic piece. So just some facts and figures, and these will be the last sort of list of data that I'll, I'll throw at you tonight. I'll give you a little data tomorrow night. But in the neighborhood where we serve at Andre House and across the street at the Human Services Campus, um, and the Human Services Campus is 17 not-for-profit agencies that's right across the street from Andre House. So St. Vincent de Paul is the largest of them. They do breakfast and lunch. Andre House does dinner. But there's health care for the homeless. There's Central Arizona Shelter Services, which does the primary housing. There's dental care, uh, mental health case working, and things like that. So this is data that's collected about just this population that's down at the corner of, of 12th and Jackson in, in Phoenix. So they've done a survey over the last year, a uh, very robust survey, and, uh, and St. Patrick's has actually been a part of getting information about how this survey is done. I was talking to them the other day. Uh, but the people, uh, they surveyed over uh, a six-month period, and they surveyed um, uh, 8,900 unique individuals just in our little neighborhood down there. So a lot of them, and they've come from every state in the United States and Puerto Rico. So they're geographically, from where they're from, dispersed. So not everybody is here. Most, most of them come from Arizona and California, um, but uh, there's a big dispersion of them. 61% of the people that they surveyed over the last uh, six months had been uh, down in that area or using the services of Andre House or others for less than two years. Less than two years. And the way that uh, Arizona has sort of thought about homelessness, they, they consider this to be a short amount of time. Less than two years is, is not chronically homeless. But can you imagine being without a home for less than two days, let alone less than two years? But 61% have been less than two years. Um, uh, 41% have some sort of regular income. So it's not just uh, the homeless and the people on the streets, but 41% of them have some source of regular income. Uh, I was thinking about them. I went to Safeway the other day, and I was in the parking lot, and uh, there was a, a van, probably 25-, 30-year-old van, and it had all these tools on it. It was a tree-cutting uh, company, and... Um, they had the hood raised in the van and there were two men working on the engine and it just broke my heart because this van clearly for their business for this tree cutting business was their livelihood right and it might have been a uh, hundred dollar fix or it could have been a two thousand dollar fix but it just broke my heart that here are people who are willing to work hard and something like uh, a, an engine repair might be might create total chaos in their life and could end up displacing them you know not only out of their business but onto the street um, this is a this is something important for us to think about 50 percent of those almost 9,000 people had been to the emergency room within the last year 50% in the last year. So the emergency room is, for most of them, or at least half of them, their primary source of medical care. So no family doctor or anything like that. Uh, and of those 50% who had been there, half of them were hospitalized as a result of going to the emergency room. 31% uh, have ex experienced abuse or trauma for which they haven't sought help. So physical or emotional violence um, that they are wrestling with that they've never gone to uh, for any sort of external help. Uh, and one in four uh, had been beaten up or attacked since they were homeless. Streets are a difficult place. Uh, people, even in our neighborhood, it's not the most dangerous place in Phoenix by far. But if you fall asleep and uh, your shoes aren't double knotted, you might not wake up with your shoes, right? People sort of cannibalize, forgive the term, they sort of take things that are just within their reach, but they need them. Um, so we tend to think of poverty in terms of economic terms, but um, one of the things, I've only been there 15 minutes, it's the smells that get me. Wow, does it smell. Right? especially June, July, August, and September. 
and we can only give about 30 showers a day down there, and it's really hard to get a, uh, it's really hard to get a shower down there. But sometimes you just know poverty by its smell. But one of the things, and uh, I know a lot of you are volunteers at Andre House and you're sensitive to it, I think sometimes we like to characterize or label the poor and the homeless as, um, as lazy, um, as uneducated or unmotivated. And the, one of the things that has just surprised me time and time again is just how beautiful people are and how talented they are. And you've got some posters of some people who, uh, with little bits of their narrative, they're incredible people. Uh, and I'm going to just show you a video, and his name is Maurice. And uh, I think it was about uh, 10 months ago, I was in the parking lot just giving out tickets, and I ran into this guy, Maurice, and he says, hey, I'm a poet. I'm like, oh, really? Share me some of your, share some of your poetry. And uh, this is what he shared with me. Go anytime you want. Hi, my name is Maurice Reed, and the name of this poem is Hope. It goes. I walked on water, you can read. I died on a cross for you, you see. Wherever you go, I will be. When times get hard, call on me. Not hard to find, not coming three. I'm waiting on you, just trusting me. Look up to the sky, that's where I'll be. Don't give up, there's hope in me. Thank you. I had to memorize uh, a cup of Casey at the bat when I was in school and things like that. But, um, you know, here's a man who, who writes, uh, composes, and memorizes his own poem. And, and uh, you know, his poem's about hope. You know, this is a person who is standing in line uh, waiting for a free dinner. And uh, he's telling me about hope. I mean, there's just incredible, incredible faith there. And they are beautiful. They really are, individually and collectively. Um, if you wait long enough, you'll see something absolutely beautiful in the people that are, that are down in our little neighborhood. But the other thing about poverty, and some of you have, have sort of hinted at this, is that it's not just economic. Um, I worked at uh, the University of Notre Dame for 15 years, and I lived in a dormitory, uh, and I worked at the University of Portland, another Catholic university for six years, and I lived in the dormitory. And one of the things that sort of astounded me about the students there, all of them sort of bright and you know, faith-filled, and they have their whole lives in front of them, is that on the outside, they were always perfectly put together. Um, now, you know, depending on what, the, what decade it was, right? You know, if it was the shaggy decade, then they were shaggily put perfectly together, right? And if it was a clean-cut decade, then they were clean-cut put together. But I found, again, and because he lived in the dormitory with him and the greatest conversations would happen between 10 p.m. and 2 a.m., is that, um, that they were a mess. They were on their way to every measure of objective and cultural success. But they were a mess. I spent four years uh, as vice president of student affairs and, and we couldn't, at Notre Dame, we couldn't staff our counseling, counseling center high enough. The number of people who came to us with issues of sort of chronic depression, uh, chronic anxiety or other issues was astounding to me, absolutely astounding. And then, uh, though uh, we didn't know the names, we tried to do some, you know, some survey data. And the students that were using the counseling center, what do you think their average grade point average was? A minus, right? These were people whose lives were falling apart because they were A minus and B plus students. They weren't failing, right? But they weren't at the top of their class. And what I learned is behind every Notre Dame and University of Portland student, right, if you scratched them a little bit, um, they were fearful, um, unmade, unfinished beings, right? But there was anxiety, like if they didn't get the right grade point average and the right MCOT score and get into the right medical school, they were just so often a holy mess, right? They felt so much pressure, and they felt alone. 
and somebody mentioned that already, one of the worst poverties, right, is just this fear of failure and the fear of being alone. A number of years ago, I was, when I was a seminarian, I was teaching catechism down in, um, uh, in Louisiana, and I was trying to ask the kids, what's the scariest bayou? I wanted to evoke fear in them, so what's the, most, what's the scariest bayou in, an, in all of Louisiana? And, and, you know, one of them said, bayou Pontchartrain, and, you know, bayou this. And they all had these sort of ominous, sort of French, you know, Creole kinds of names, and... And one kid said this. He said, the worst bayou in the world is bayou self. Hmm? That is probably the most terrifying place in the world to be, is by ourselves. Um, and, you, and, and that's not economic, right? Sometimes we have family and friends around us, and, and yet we still feel alone or lonely, um, and the big difference is, is this, is that the people who are economically poor and live in our neighborhood, uh, they can't cloak their nakedness, their aloneness, right? But people with material wealth sometimes can cloak their poverty, cloak their nakedness. St. Augustine said this, Our hearts are restless, O Lord, and they do not rest until they rest in you. His observation in the confessions, and this is a very restless guy who had tried to fill his life with everything, with, with Manichaeanism, this sort of philosophical um, uh, way to understand the world. Uh, he lived a very lecherous life. He tried to fill it with women and with, with things. Right? In his observation, one of his most famous and important ones, his insight was this. Our hearts are restless, O God, and they will not rest until they rest in you. Nobody completes you. No thing completes you. God made us in a way that it, it, we're kind of like donuts. We, we have this hole in the center of us, right, that is not is always going to be craving something to be put into it to sort of fill us up preferably jelly or boston cream or something like but it's not meant to be filled by anything or anyone that space is the place where a divine void is left where the only thing that will fill it is, is God's love. And I would say that as I think about where we are in the year of 2015 in this sort of in, in, in our American way is that we look for all kinds of things to put into that center, that hollow space of us. We look for um, people, right? Uh, a lot of times relationships will fall apart because the person isn't who they thought they were going to be and, and they, they don't complete them in the way that, that they'd hoped they would. Um, or we put things in there, right? The classic sort of midlife crisis, right? Uh, this is where the red convertibles come from, right? It's like, let me, you know what, If I, I've, since I was a kid, I love Mustang convertibles and if I... If I get that Mustang convertible, that, that will make me feel whole or complete or satisfied. But we know that that isn't lasting, right? And our culture really encourages us to put all kinds of things in there. Um, I'll admit as a celibate, right, you don't have a lot of choices about what you can put in there, right? So my priest friends and I, we talk about retail therapy, right? which is to say that we, we look for something, you know, we, something you can buy, you know, a new pair of shoes or a new black suit, woohoo, right? Uh, 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 but it's got a better brand, right? Um, uh, but that's so fleeting, right? And then we can even put things that are just outright harmful, right? This is where sometimes addictions come from, alcohol and drugs, 
right? We put them in the middle of us and they make us feel a little bit better. They, they sort of take, us, take care of us for a little while, right? Um, but nothing completes us. So there are two big obstacles, I think, to defining who is poor. The first is that we tend as a culture to simply diagnose it as a lack of material needs. Uh, and the second is that we, you and I, as a general type, we don't think of ourselves as poor. It's easier to just point at material poverty and say, that's poverty. Thank God I'm not poor. When the Pope was interviewed shortly after he was uh, selected, he said, I am a sinner. Who are you? I am a sinner. And I'd like to suggest that he might have been talking about his imperfections or misdeeds or failings that he's had. But after I watched him and listened to him over time, he might be suggesting that his sin is is cloaking his nakedness, right? his vulnerability, um, putting things or power or things in the place that is reserved for God. I remember I had a moment uh, where I knew I was so utterly poor. I was working for the University of Portland. I was in charge of their fundraising. I was at LAX airport, and I was supposed to be flying to Atlanta uh, for to be the godfather of one of my best friend's son. And uh, I got a phone call uh, that I was needed in Chicago for a funeral. And um, I remember I was there at LAX, and I was exhausted from going and going, just working so hard. And I remember sitting on the curb just sobbing at LAX. I had enough credit card, space on my credit card, to buy a ticket anywhere that I needed to be. But I didn't know where I was supposed to be as a friend, as a potential godfather, as a priest. Um, we can feel poor at those lone, lonely moments where, where there's nothing inside of us, right? Um, and we can be poor at sort of our best moments. The thing about Jerry Maguire is that, you know, he, he, he reached out for this person to marry him when he was empty. And then when he was full, the business was a success. He realized, well, it's not, it's not enough just to be a success in business. Maybe if I put my wife back in that hole as well, then I'll feel whole, right? Um, the difference between... Um, people we call poor and people like me is they know they're naked. They can't cloak. And you and I suffer from the same condition of poverty, but we can hide it better. I'm going to tell one story and then we'll take a little break. Um, when I was in the seminary, there was a Jesuit living with us Michael Buckley from the uh, California province, and um, I was going through a dark time, depression, and he was just a holy and jovial man, and I went to talk to him. I just needed, you know, some of his insurance, and he told me this story. He said, he said, when I was a young Jesuit, and this person came to me, and, and uh, who was depressed like you were, uh, and I spent months working with him, and we'd meet every week, and we'd talk about everything that was going on, and he didn't seem to be getting any better. So uh, after some months, I referred him to another Jesuit. Um, and then uh, I didn't see him for a couple of months. And then I bumped into him on campus. And he looked great. He looked like he was doing much better. And I said to him, I said, you look great. What happened? He says, well, I was meeting with Father so-and-so, and, and we just had some good, you know, really good conversations. And, in, and Michael Buckley said, well, what did you say to him? What did he say to you? And he said, the Jesuit priest said this to me. I understand. I understand the heaviness, the depression, the sorrow that you feel. Right? Um, that moment, that meeting of hearts, right, comes from sort of a deep understanding.
right? of poverty, of nakedness, of vulnerability, of need. Right? So we're going to take a little break, and I'm going to ask you to enter into, don't get too far from where you are, into a non-threatening, and you can sort of make fun of yourself, uh, conversation with people around you, and um, just say, what, what do you try to fit into your empty hole inside of you? Right? Uh, now, if it was my mom, mom, forgive me, I'd say it was shoes. This woman had so many shoes, right? The opposite of the old woman in the shoe. Um, but stand up, and uh, you can either introduce yourself and pretend you're ans- answering this question with each other, or you can say, I know exactly what Father is talking about, and this is what I tend to do to escape to fill the empty hole in me. And so we'll take two or three minutes, stretch, and then we'll move on with the rest of the evening, all right? So, a couple minutes break. So we began uh, our discussion about what are the characteristics of, of, of who is poor, right? And I just wanted us to take, uh, it, it took a long time to get there, but just to take one step to say, um, to define poor in, uh, to crassly, to be poor is to be naked, right? Uh, and frankly, uh, we're all born into the world, literally and, and figuratively naked, right? Um, we are all poor. Um, and if we're going to, we're going to get there, talk about seeing Christ in the face of the poor, um, it's hard to be able to see Christ in the face of the poor, the material poor, unless we recognize that, uh, that we're victims of poverty ourselves. Um, so how do Christians, what's an appropriate Christian response to poverty? So we'll spend some time thinking about that a little bit, but um, consider your own sort of natural gut human response to a friend who shares with you that they have been diagnosed with cancer. Or what evo- is evoked in you if you see a, um, uh, a veteran who has lost uh, two of her limbs? Uh, what happens to you? What's your sort of unreflected response to a filthy panhandler? Or what's your natural response to a hungry child? And I would venture to say that uh, almost uniformly, in one way or another, that if you're part of the human race, that your natural response to cancer or um, illness or hunger is, is compassion. Of course. Compassion. And furthermore, if you feel compassion or you feel compassion should be extended to someone and it's not, uh, it's kind of revolting, right? What would you think if somebody passed by a, a, a panhandler and said, get a job, bum? You'd be like, hey, buddy, show him some compassion. Right? Compassion is, is such a natural part of the hu- human species. Compassion comes from two Latin words. Passion, to suffer, come with. Compassion means to suffer with. And though it comes naturally to human beings, um, why is it so hard? Or why do we want to avoid entering into the pain of others? Why is it that the world is the way it is? I watched the news tonight and and if compassion is this sort of natural human response, is well, that's the right thing to do. It's the natural thing to do. Uh, then why do we have all this crazy stuff going on between Christians and Muslims and uh, the radical? Mu- I mean, isn't compassion just natural to all human beings? And the response that some people have helped me to think through, two people in particular, I'm going to reference a book, and 
some of the material I'm using from a book called Compassion by Henry Nowen and, and Father Don McNeil. Uh, and it's just called Compassion. And I'd highly recommend it uh, to you. I've read it ten times, right? It's a kind of book that you just keep coming back to and you can look at it every other year and, and see something new. But they set out to sort of explore this notion of compassion and they were intrigued by this question that is a natural human response, but it's not universal and it has limits to it. And one of the things they were doing when they set out to write this book is they were going to talk to a lot of people about what they thought about compassion was. And one of the people that they interviewed was the uh, late senator and former vice president, Hubert Humphrey. And they thought, you know, he's a pretty compassionate guy, was certainly uh, a forward thinker when it came to civil rights and, and other important issues. Let's ask him what he thinks about compassion. And they were in his office in Washington, D.C., and this is what Hubert Humphrey said to uh, Henry Nowen and, and Father Don McNeil. He said, gentlemen, look at this pencil. Just as the eraser is a very small part of this pencil and used only when you make a mistake, so compassion is only called upon when things get out of hand. The main part of life is competition. Only the eraser is compassion. It's sad to say, gentlemen, but in politics, compassion is just part of the competition. Is that so? Is life really about the competition and is compassion just a nominal tool for erasing mistakes? The answer is it depends. It depends on what you claim is your primary citizenship. If the primary way that we define ourselves is as a citizen of any nation state, if the fundamental way that you and I see and understand and relate to the world is as a citizen of the United States or Canada or France or Mexico or Iran, if our fundamental sense of rights and responsibility come from any constitution, then I would say yes, competition is the rule and compassion is the exception. But if our primary citizenship is with God in Jesus Christ, if that's the world, the kingdom to which we belong, then it's not the case that competition is the pencil and compassion is the eraser. We belong as Christians to a kingdom not of man's making. Let me reread from Paul's letter to the Galatians, chapter 4, verses 4 through 8. When the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his Son, born of woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons and daughters. And because you are sons and daughters, God has sent the Spirit of His Son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. So you are no longer a slave, but a child. And if a child, an heir through God. Formerly, when you did not know God, you were enslaved to those that by nature are not God's. Protestants do a lot better job of helping us understand the power of the doctrine of our adoption in Jesus Christ than Catholics do. But when we are adopted, and Paul means this in a, in a, in, in a literal sense, right? We assume a new identity. Abba, our Father, does not send us back. Right? We're not purchased we're adopted. We take on a new family. And when you're a member of family, you have rights right, that, that are almost irrevocable. 
Think about families, and there's distress in my family. No family is perfect, right? But have you ever heard it say somebody, look, if it wasn't my own brother, I wouldn't put up with this. I would just be done with him, right? The adoption that happens in a family is different, right, than the belonging to any nation, state. And so when we think about our citizenship, we give respect to civil laws of our land. But for us, the Declaration of Independence, the Constitution that governs our life and guides our life is sacred scripture and the continuing revelation of God and Jesus Christ. How naive. Maybe. But we always say that we desire to be members of God's eternal kingdom in heaven. And if that's what our deepest desire is, and that is what our deepest desire is, then we need to start to begin to assimilate citizenship in his family uh, and belonging and building his kingdom on earth. And what did God's Son say to us? In Luke chapter 6, verse 36, he says this, Be compassionate as your heavenly Father is compassionate. Between now and tomorrow, think about all the gospel stories that you know and how many of them are about Jesus' compassion to someone. Forgive your enemies 70 times 70 times. Feed the hunger. Clothe the naked. Give compassion to the suffering. It might be the right way to think about Jesus Christ, his fundamental mission on earth that reveals his Father's attitude toward us and prescribes our attitude towards others is compassion. The first line of the first reading from yesterday, Jerusalem, take off your robe of mourning and misery. Put on the splendor of the glory from God forever. Many people will say to us, Christians, you are naive. But we should consider that naive, naive at our own peril. I want to acknowledge that competition is a way of life. And there is a place in life for competition. The free market is a useful and a productive means of organizing the economy and creating goods and services. But when I was at my orientation at the Harvard Business School, the dean who spoke to us said this to us. He said, we expect you to be hard-minded, but we do not want you to be hard-hearted. Right? Even within the competition of the free market, right, it requires discipline, creativity, thoughtfulness, difficult decisions, right? but we can't be without compassion for one another. I've been successful. I am a competitive guy. I learned sports when I was early, and, and I'm telling you, very few people can work as hard as I do. Competition has been an important part of my life. And it's won me a lot of acclaim, right? Uh, not just as a priest, but as being able to do things within priesthood. I admit I get a lot of my own identity from being successful. What if I'm not successful? God would say, so what? I didn't send you here, Tom, to be successful, right? I sent you here to be loving. And you can be successful too, but if my only measure is success, 
then I have the wrong measuring stick. Philippians says this, Do nothing out of selfishness. Rather, humbly regard others as more important than yourselves, each looking not out for their own interests, but for, ev but for everyone, for those of others. Have among yourselves the same attitude that is also yours in Jesus Christ, who though he was in the form of the slave, it was in the form of God, he did not regard equality with God as something to be grasped at. Rather, he emptied himself, taking the form of a slave. Coming in human likeness and found in human appearance, he humbled himself, becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. It could easily be argued that the greatest act of compassion in the history of the world was the Father sending his Son to become human. The Father and the Son already had everything, everything that the universe could promise. But he humbled himself. To what? To become a slave. When he was tempted in the desert, the devil said, look, here are three things. You can be powerful. You can have all things, right? And Jesus turned away from them and said, no, I am pursuing the will of my Father. I choose not to do that. The incarnation that we celebrate at Christmas time is par excellence, the perfect act of compassion. But it's important to remember that, that God didn't stoop down like we bend down to a child, you know, and, and talk baby talk. He sent himself to be one, one like us. And sometimes I just can't get my mind around that. It just is boggling to me, and um, we're okay on time here. So I want to read something uh, that's an, an analog to this, right, about what it means that Jesus, God, would come to be one like us. And it's from the beginning of a book by Richard Bach called Illusions. He also uh, was the author of Jonathan Livingston Siegel. But, um, but there, it has this funny prelude at the beginning of the book, uh, but it's a fable. And I'll read the fable to you. It's probably just it's three or four paragraphs. Once there was a village of creatures along the bottom of a great crystal river. The current of the river swept silently over them, all young and old, rich and poor, good and evil, the current going its own way, knowing only its own crystal self. Each, each creature in its own manner clung tightly to the twigs and rocks of the river bottom, for clinging was their way of life, and resisting the current was what each had learned from birth. But one creature said at last, I am tired of clinging. Though I cannot see it with my eyes, I trust that the current knows where it's going. I shall let it go and let it take me where it will. Clinging, I shall die of boredom. The other creatures laughed out and said, Fool, let go and that current you worship will throw you. Tumbled and smashed across the rocks, and you will die quicker than boredom. But the one heeded them not, and taking a breath did let go, and at once was tumbled and smashed by the current across the rocks. Yet in time, as the creature refused to cling again, the current lifted him free from the bottom, and he was bruised and hurt no more. And the creatures downstream to whom he was a stranger cried, See, a miracle, a creature like ourselves, yet he flies. See the Messiah come to save us all. And the one carried in the current said, I am no more of the Messiah than you. The river delights to lift us free, if only we dare to let go. 
Jesus Christ was a creature just like us. We cling. Jesus clung to nothing but the will and the love of his Father. And this is what liberated him to not care what the Romans, not care what the Jewish authorities, not care what the world thought about him. Right? Uh, this is what freed him to give down, to give up, or to lay down his own life for us. Jesus didn't see us as other. Jesus saw us as brother and sister because he was the Father's Son, just like we became through him the sons and daughters through adoption. This compassion, right? I know there are skeptics out there, and, and I, if, I was, if I was more convinced of myself, I would convince you better, right? And I would be more articulate about being real, about how the world has real competition in it, right? And we have to pay attention to that, and we have to work hard, but that our primary lens needs to be, as Christians and as Christians, people of compassion. The founder of Andre House, I went to a lecture 20, 20 years after he founded it, and was on Notre Dame's campus, and somebody raised their hand and said, what's the most radical thing a Christian could do with their life today? He said, the most radical thing a Christian could do is get married in the church and raise children in the faith. He said, there's nothing that there's less cultural support for. Culture says autonomy. Uh, marriage says interdependence. Culture says my way. Marriage says our way. Um, uh, culture says independence. And um, marriage and family say interdependence. And the seed of compassion within us needs to grow. Um, and it needs to grow because Jesus has modeled for us what the perfect life of compassion is and can be. I just want to finish with, um, uh, with just one other thought and, and um, where we'll pick up tomorrow is that um, what is poverty? Poverty is to be naked, and all of us are poor. Um, and there's just, you and I have just better cloaking abilities than, than the material poor, but one of the beautiful things about working with the folks at Andre House is that they, j they, they don't even try, they're so tired and they're so broken, they don't even want to hide their poverty anymore. And I want to read the Beatitudes to you Right? Because maybe, well, why, is it, why are the poor blessed? Right? But the Beatitudes are about us. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for the kingdom of God is theirs. Blessed are they who mourn, for they will be comforted. Do you mourn? Yeah. Blessed are they who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be satisfied. Do you hunger and thirst for a more righteous world? Yeah, you're poor. Blessed are the merciful, for they will be shown mercy. Are you merciful? Jesus isn't talking about the homeless here. He's talking about you and me. And he's saying that we're blessed when we recognize that we're not self-made people that we're not free agents, that we're not independent, that we're just his sons and daughters. Right? And in him, we have all that we need. The prayer that we began with, or take, Lord, receive all I have and possess, all my memory, my entire will. Give me only your love and your grace. That's enough for me. Tomorrow, we'll talk about what we do, right? If, if you... If you can just provisionally say, okay, Father Tom says, uh, the poor is to be naked, uh, I'm naked, uh, and compassion is a fundamental way that God 
uh, sent his son into the world, then, then what do we do with it? Um, and there's just a story on my heart that I'll finish up with, and then we'll go in peace to love and serve the Lord. But um, I learned this. It's funny what God teaches you along the way. I was in fourth grade. Grew up in a little town in Washington State. And um, uh, the same 120 people that graduated from Colville High School were the same 120 people I went to kindergarten with. Um, uh, a little farming in, in, in Lumber Company, or Lumber Town. And... Uh, uh, this was, a, this was a working class and, and, and lower class town, but we didn't know it. It's, it's just what we lived in. But there was a kid in our class, and his name was Troy Garrett. And Troy Garrett had nothing going for him at all. Uh, his family was economically poor in the ways that the rest of the town wasn't poor. Uh, Troy Garrett had uh, a terrible stutter. Right, and if you can imagine how cruel kids can be to one another, uh, Troy's stutter made his economic poverty only worse. Um, but probably the presenting thing about Troy is that he really stunk. Uh, he was the stinkiest kid in the class, and nobody wanted to sit next to him. And, um, you know, in the assigned seating, I'm sure people said, if, and I may have said, I don't want to sit next to Troy. Um, and if not to make things worse, Troy was left-handed, right? right? And, you know, everybody, when I was growing up, was forced to be a right-hander. Why were you forced to be a right-hander? Because your big brother had a baseball glove that fit on your left hand, right? It was just necessity, right? There was no, you know. But Troy was hopelessly left-handed. So when it came to uh, activity on the uh, playground, Troy had to play with a right-handed mitt on his left hand. So the stinky guy who stutters um, has, you know, just looks all the more out there like he doesn't belong. And I have a friend named Mick Daly who was the best athlete in, in the fourth grade, went on to be the high school quarterback and play college football. Um, and uh, one day uh, he came to school uh, his mom, actually, his mom, Arlene, came to school, and she met with the group of boys. And I was kind of in that pack of kids who kind of ruled the playground. And, you know, I was, wasn't the first kid chosen on teams, but I, I was one of the first ten chosen, right? So Mick's mom gathered us all together, and she presented us with a left-handed baseball mitt. And she said, I want you to give this to Troy. And uh, so we did. You've never seen somebody change the way that they relate to the people around them like Troy Garrett. That somebody had thought of him, right? Somebody gave him something that his family couldn't afford that he was allowed to play with us in a way that um, he wasn't able to play before. Uh, I don't know, it just stuck with me, right? That some other boy's mom had the compassion or the understanding to see how somebody was ex so excluded. These are simple things. Clean clothing, you know, left-handed baseball mitt, right? But the inclusion was so powerful from the simple act of compassion. Right? Uh, so let's just finish with prayer, and um, I think we'll visit for a little while afterwards, and tomorrow we'll talk about, well, what do we do with this compassion, or where does it, where does it drive us, or, or what's next? Um, how do we commission ourselves from here? So, so Heavenly Father, we thank you for the gift of life, and though we so often would prefer not to be vulnerable and afraid and uh, naked, um, we recognize that it's in our imperfections that you enter into us. And it's in our own imperfections or limitations that other people are privileged to enter into our lives, Lord. So 
Help us not to run from this poverty, Lord, but to embrace it and recognize that it's a way that uh, it's a way that you present gifts to us. Help us not to want the things that we don't have, but to love the things that we don't have. We thank you for this community that gathers in prayer and this night in so many ways, and we thank you that there are so many good people here that uh, have such deep compassion in their lives, and Lord, as big as it is, help it to grow. Help it to grow uh, under their own roof, and then Lord, as it grows under their own roof, help it to grow in this community uh, so that we might truly understand how it is that we see and serve Christ in the poor. We ask this through Christ our Lord. Amen. Great. We'll see you tomorrow night, hopefully.